Last week we, we hit uh, Lord's Day 14, right? Yes. Was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Um, I was tempted to do more uh, on the Virgin Mary. I think that there's probably some more teaching that Protestants could stand to receive on uh, the Virgin Mary. I think sometimes as Protestants we tend to be allergic to the Virgin Mary, and uh, it's not right. Um, she's not someone you pray to. She's not a meteor. Me, me, she's not a meteor either. Mediator. Uh, but she is blessed above all women, and she is the mother of God. Um, that's historic Orthodox doctrine, and uh, it's helpful for us to know what that means. But uh, that would be a diversion. And uh, my understanding is that Dr. Glomzra did not touch on Lord's Day 13. Is that correct? Okay. And so we're going back, we're a little disorderly here. We're going to go back to Lord's Day 13, and then God's, God willing, next week we'll do Lord's Day 15. And we'll start in the, the section of the Creed that deals with our Lord's Passion. And so Lord's Day 13 in the Psalter Hymnal, you'll find on page 20, it's uh, two questions, 33 and 34. And um, let's begin with a word of prayer, shall we? Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. We thank you for all that you have given us in Him. And we do pray, Lord, and ask that you would bless us now and enlighten our minds and give us clarity and understanding into the faith once for all delivered to your people, and help us, Lord, to understand what it means that you have sent your only begotten Son into this world, the one that we call Lord. Oh, Lord, what a blessing it is to be able to say that and confess that with our own lips today. And so bless our time together, increase our understanding, strengthen our faith, and bless the children in all their respective classes. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want to, if you if you can, I want to invite you to maybe just come a little forward if you're able to, since this is a class. And uh, I would never embarrass anybody and do that in worship, but I'll embarrass you and do it in class. If you can just come a little bit for, forward, because uh, we have a lot of. There we go. That's a little better. It's just a class. It's a little more informal, and uh, that way I'm not looking at people all the way back there. Um. Okay, so if you want to turn in the Psalter hymnal to page 20 uh, in the back, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 13, question 33. So, people of God, why is he called God's only begotten Son when we also are God's children? Christ alone is the natural Son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace through Christ. Why do you call him our Lord? Because not with soul or silver, but with his precious blood, he has set us free from sin and from the tyranny of the devil, and has bought us body and soul to be his very own. Okay, great teaching. Uh, so we remember the section of the catechism that this is. It's the, the grace section, the guilt section. You have the introduction, questions 1 and 2, then questions 3 through 11, guilt, 
grace, questions 12 all the way through 85, and then gratitude, questions 86 through 129. Kind of moves like the book of Romans. And in the grace section, it exposits the Apostles' Creed. And as I was mentioning last week, that's one of the strengths of the Heidelberg Catechism, that it's rooted in the ancient church. Uh, very important for us to stay rooted in the ancient church. What I mean by that is that we don't uh, dismiss things or jettison things that um, are good and true from the ancient church, such as uh, creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, uh, definition of Chalcedon, Athanasian Creed, um, also uh, songs, hymnody, things like the doxology that we sing in the morning and the Gloria Patri that we sing in the evening. Um, God's people have been singing those for, for uh, over 1,500 years. And uh, it's important. And there's nothing wrong with having new tunes and writing new uh, settings of psalms um, or even new hymns. Uh, but we don't want to only have the new. And uh, we've seen, many of us, the damage that that's caused in the evangelical church where you have to constantly improve yourself, constantly you know, be on the cutting edge. And uh, it's okay to have the new, but you also want to balance it out with the old. And it's a blessing to be able to sing some of these songs. The creed is important that we uh, confess it and that we go line by line and we understand what we're saying. That was the intent of the reformers. Uh, they didn't want to be labeled as revolutionaries. They were not revolutionaries. They were reformers. Big difference. The original intent of the Reformation was not to start a new church, but was to reform the church with, within. And uh, as I've mentioned before, the, the doctrine of justification by faith alone um, was not considered illegal by the Roman Catholic Church uh, until the Council of Trent, um, I believe it was on January 13, 1547, when they uh, ruled that the doctrine of justification by faith alone is heresy and false teaching. So there's a lot of reforming work. If that's 47, you've got three decades <clears throat> that go by since the time that Luther nails the 95 Theses. That's a, that's a lot of time. And uh, there's a lot of work to be done reforming the church from within. Okay, after Trent, you have yeah, Protestant churches that are now uh, flourishing more, and uh, there's a more conscientious effort to um, establish a Protestant church that's confessional and creedal, and that's why you have the confessions you know, in the 1550s, 1560s, Heidelberg, 1563, Belgic, 1561, and included in those confessions is their exposition of the creed, the ancient church, or references, as the Belgic makes, to the ancient creeds in order to show that um, we're not starting a new church. We, we, are, we are the Christian church that's historic, and we, we are connected to uh, the church as she existed uh, since the early centuries. So that's the intent. Uh, I like to point that out time and, time and again so that we have an appreciation for the, hopefully have an appreciation for the, for the creed and the exposition of it in the Heidelberg. So we get now to this line. Why is he called only begotten son? And then also, why do we call him our Lord? So think about the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ. And now it's his only begotten son, our Lord. And then uh, we went into, last week, 
who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So what, why, what are we saying with these two lines? Uh, Heidelberg answers on the first that uh, it's because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are adopted children of God, adopted by grace through Christ. Uh, very much gets at the text that we heard this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, and how apart from Jesus Christ, we're actually children of wrath because of our sin. Uh, Christ is the, is the only true Son, natural Son, and the only begotten Son. Uh, but what does that mean exactly, that He's the only begotten Son? Uh, that can sometimes trip us up a little bit. As it, it almost seems as if, you know, well, there, the Father existed before the Son. And uh, the Father, at some point, had a Son. And that would mean that the Son didn't exist from all eternity past. And that would be pro problematic. Why? Well, why would that be problematic? Let me ask that question. Can you think of why would it be problematic if God the Son did not exist from all eternity past? Anybody think of a reason why? What do you think, Eric? Sorry? Yeah. I think that's a great point. Yes, it very much. You're thinking of the, the outcome uh, and how it affects us. We have no Savior. Because it took the God-man to save us. He has to be man, as we saw, in order to... Uh, because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which is, has sinned against God must also bear that, uh, that punishment. But he has to be God in order to bear the punishment. And so what, what I hear you saying is that if there was a time when the Son did not exist and the Father, you know, made the Son, then is the Son of the same essence as the Father? In other words, would the Son be God? Now, when you argue with those, those sweet people, they usually are quite sweet. And I, and, and I want to uh, encourage you to uh, engage them if you have time. Um, don't be confrontational. Be happy that they're there. And just ask them what the gospel is. I'm talking about those people from the Watchtower Society who come to your house. Um, you might be the only person who tells them the gospel. And so take that opportunity. Um, but they'll say, well, yeah, he's of the same essence as the Father in the way that, uh, you know, a son, you know, like my son, Isaac, has my DNA and you know, he's a chip off the old block, right? Even though he's more like his mother. Um, the one that gets in trouble all the time with the loud mouth, he's more like his father. Um, uh, is that what we mean when we say that the Son is uh, the only begotten of the Father? Well, here's the thing, is that, can, is God a, cr a creature? No. Absolutely not. So if the Father created the Son, what does that make the Son? A creature. doesn't matter how high he is, how exalted he is, if he was made, 
He is, by definition, not God. And if he is not God, that means a lot of things, including probably the most important things. He can't bear the judgment uh, upon Calvary. Now, this was something that was, uh, you know, as you find, most false teachings today, uh, they, they usually aren't something new. It's usually a, a, another false teaching from the past that is just being reinvented. And, uh, and so this stuff was debated, actually, uh, in the 4th century. This is where we have the first ecumenical council of Nicaea, where we get the Nicene Creed from. And so Nicaea meets in uh, not circa 325, Anno Domini, Year of Our Lord, or the Common Era, as people are saying now. I was saying the other day, how, it's funny how people are trying to say the Common Era. That's, that's in vogue now in the Academy. And you don't write A.D., you write C.E., Common Era. And if it's B.C., you write B.C.E., Before Common Era. Because, you know, we can't give Christ too much recognition. So we'll say Before the Common Era and Common Era. Which, of course, only begs the question, what started the Common Era? Right? And so whether you like it or not, call it whatever you want, all across the whole world, everybody knows this is year 2017. 2017 years since what? The Common Era. That's right which Christ Jesus brought into this world. So anyway, that's my transformationalist moment. Uh, Nicaea, 325 AD, uh, it's the first ecumenical council. Ecumenical means that both east and west, the, the, the whole church, by delegation, it, uh, meets together. And uh, there were seven of these ecumenical councils from the, the fourth century to the eighth century and the first one dealt with a, uh, a heresy known as Arianism. Arianism has nothing to do with white supremacy. That was a joke. Because usually I say Arianism, and, and I usually people th are thinking, you know, those scary guys with tattoos in prisons. Um, but it has to do with a guy named Arius. And uh, he lives, what, I think it's, I'll have to ask Dr. Glomsrud. Uh, like 250 to 3. <laughs> He's alive here at 325. Here, I'll find it for you. I'll find it for you. Got it in my notes somewhere. He lives, you can probably find it faster by Googling. Ah, three, 250 to 336. There we go. I was right, 250. That's an easy number to remember. What did I say, 336? I think that's right. He's alive during this time. So, um, I'm not going to go all into this too much, but it is interesting because um, who is the Roman emperor at this time? Anybody remember? Constantine. Now you remember that um, the, 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 church, the Christian church is, uh, does not have political favor. They, they are not the favored religion before Constantine. And they, they suffer a lot of persecution. If you travel to Rome... Uh, to Italy, you can find all kinds of places where Christians were martyred. The Colosseum, for example, they were thrown to the lions. Not perpetually and all the time. There were certain emperors that were worse than others. And you had guys like Nero and uh, Valerian and Diocletian and, and others who persecuted Christians. I think um, 
what's his name, from Gladiator, did. Commodus and his father, uh, Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius, actually, also persecuted the, the, the Christians. Anyway, some were local, some were broad. Uh, the church was always um, uh, marginalized in those first three centuries. Constantine becomes the first Christian emperor, so-called. It's, you know, scholars debate on uh, how credible of a profession he might have made. But the, the thing is, is that you have this guy, Arius, um, who is a well-known leader in the church, pastor, and he develops this idea that the Son is not eternal. And uh, according to church history, he, uh, he was quite popular, especially with women, um, and he had even developed some jingles or you know, little choruses to promote his doctrine uh, that there was a time when Christ was not. There was when the Son was not, is what he said. Now, we agree, it's true, of course, that Jesus of Nazareth does not exist. Um, I'm going to be guarded here in how I say this. Uh, his humanity is born in time in 2,000 years ago. We don't want to think of the Son of God looking like a first century Jew, you know, 10,000 years B.C. Uh, he didn't have flesh. And he comes, but the Son of God is eternal. Comes into the world, as we talked about last week, um, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, but Arius was going further than that. He, he was saying that it wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth you know, in his humanity, but even his deity from before the foundation of the world, that there was a time when he did not exist. And that that's what only begotten means. But uh, at, and, and he, it, this caused such an uproar in the Roman Empire, which... At that time, you know, with Constantine, things were changing for the church, and uh, Christianity was a, a more favored religion. And uh, Constantine, wanting to keep peace in the empire, and it could be argued peace in the church, calls a council uh, for a number of things, but particularly to discuss this. And about 200 uh, bishops or so uh, come to the uh, to the Council of Nicaea. Some still bearing the the scars and the the wounds from persecutions past. And uh, I think Dr. Godfrey used to say some of them must have thought the the must have been post millennial thinking the the glory age has come because now we have the em emperor and all these things have changed. And of course we see how as time marches on that they're. You know, the post-millennial idea, it just doesn't work, you know, uh, practically, let alone exegetically. Anyway, Arius has this idea that um, it's, it, it, the sun is uh, not e eternal, and that that is ultimately what only begotten means. So what does only begotten mean? Um, whatever it means, it means that the sun somehow proceeds from the father. Uh, that he is begotten of the Father, and that 
ultimately, you can't have a father, though, without a son. I mean, I, I was not a father when I didn't have a son or daughter. I only became a father when I had a child. The father, however, is eternal. And the son is eternal. And this is what bothers us in our minds. We think, well, was there a time of their beginning? But we have to remember that God is, is infinite, and we are finite. That God's understanding and knowledge is not only omniscient, but it is so beyond the bounds of our finitude that whatever we know about God, it's only those things that God has chosen to reveal. And that there are many things that are mysterious, and that it should be that way. You know, the fact that God is three persons and one in essence is something we can't fully comprehend with our finite minds. The fact that Christ is fully God and fully man. I mean, how can you be 100% God and 100% man in one person? It's something that our minds can't fully grasp. Uh, how is it that the church is mystically, you, mysteriously united with Christ, even in his body and blood in heaven, and that we, in some way, benefit from the body and blood and commune with the body and blood every every. Lord's Day, when we partake of the, the bread and the wine by faith, we can't get our minds fully around that. There's lots of mysteries, not contradictions, but mysteries in Scripture. And this would also be another, the fact that God is eternal, and that the Son, being the only begotten, is, is in his personhood, uh, he proceeds forth and is begotten of the Father from all of eternity past. We have to stop there. What we want to emphasize, however, not only the point that Eric made that uh, Christ and his divinity is necessary for us to have a savior, because he had to bear the weight of God's wrath, but the fact, really, as the catechism goes into, that we are only children of God by adoption. The Son is the only natural Son of God. And then when he comes into the world, Remember how the Father identified him openly before all. Remember his baptism? What did the Father say as the Holy Spirit descended upon the Son? The heavens opened up and all heard a loud voice. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. A man who, who does everything that the Father requires. Uh, conforms his will to the Father's will perfectly. Obeys the law of God. You know, Israel was a kind of son, and Israel was disobedient. Uh, Adam was a kind of son. Adam was disobedient. But the Son of God comes into the world and assumes human flesh, and he's obedient. And it's in him, as we are united with him by the Holy Spirit through faith, that we become beloved sons and daughters, that we're adopted, that we are no longer, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, children of wrath but we become the children of God. Any questions on that? Yeah, John. So in regard to um, like Arius, who would say that um, at some point in time, Christ became, or Jesus, or Christ the became son. Son, yeah, the son. So that wouldn't be at the incarnation. They would think it was sometime before. Yeah, the, there was at some point... There was some, at some point in eternity past, 
the Father existed, but the Son did not exist. So basically, it was the second Adam before the first Adam because they're both created. Yeah, well, yeah, but he, the Son doesn't become the second Adam until the incarnation, right. And it gets a little confusing sometimes because we have to remember that Christ is two natures, one person. And that in his humanity, his humanity does not exist until the Holy Spirit conceives him in the womb of Mary, the virgin. Uh, but that his divinity has always existed. And so you have two natures, one man. And, and that's why Mary is referred to as the mother of God, because what, what you can say about one nature, you can say about the whole person. You know, and so we can say Jesus is God. You know, um, we don't say, well, Jesus isn't God, but the Son of God is God. You know, well, the two natures are one person. If that makes sense. It was the first ecumenical council. Okay. Yeah, it's the first big one. There are seven, and he's condemned. Yeah, the or the the, the teaching of Arianism is condemned. I've never heard it put that way before. Thank you, Lord, for only telling us this much. We would create more heresies. Um, that's a good point. But here's the thing. We have a debt to heresy. And uh, the, when, when heretics come along, someone like Arius, first of all, we, gotta, we, gotta, we have to understand that if you look at all the, the heretics over, the, over church history, those, that is, people who were condemned, you know, we tend to say, oh, that guy's a heretic, that guy's a heretic. We can't really say that unless a council condemned that person and his teaching. When they come along, people like Arius, uh, Polinarius, um, Nestorius, uh, Eutyches, um, pick your favorite guy, Marcion. Um, they, first of all, they don't think they're out doing heresy. They're not like, I'm going to go and destroy Christ's church. They are acting in the interest of truth. Um, but then the, what happens is the church comes together and has to say, okay, now we're, hearing, now we're hearing this teaching, and it's competing with another teaching. We need to examine it, and let's see what's true. And, you, and it, it, that's why councils often take a long time. There's study committees. There's lots of things being written. There's lots of examination and observation. And the debt that we owe to heresy is that our language then tightens up. So we got a creed out of this. And the, 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 so if, we, if you look at the Nicene Creed, for example, now I should just say by a footnote, the Nicene Creed went through a few revisions. One that ended up splitting the church left and uh, west and east. But um, if we won't talk about that right now. But if you look at the, um, oh gosh, I'm going the wrong way here. If you look at the uh, Nicene Creed, page 4, uh, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice how, notice how clear the language is, and how specific. The only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, or ages, see? Emphasizing. 
his eternality. And then, uh, then this is the language I love the most. This is my favorite language in the Nicene. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Right? Bam! <laughs> so good. Athanasius was the hero. Because um, you have you know, good guys and bad guys, so to speak, kind of uh, hammering out uh, what's true. And his big opponent was Athanasius. Um, Athanasius was awesome. I have a quote here somewhere by C.S. Lewis. I should read about Athanasius. Yeah. Athena- okay, Burkhoff said, He stands out on the pages of history as a strong, inflexible, and unwavering champion of the truth. I'd like people to be saying that about you, you know, a thousand years later. That's pretty awesome. C.S. Lewis said, He stood for the Trinitarian doctrine, whole and undefiled, when it looked as if all the civilized world was slipping back from Christianity into the religion of Arius, into one of those sensible, synthetic religions, which then as now included among their devotees many highly cultured clergymen. Uh, that was one of the reasons why Arius was, uh, was uh, so persuasive, is that he was a good communicator, he was highly educated, he was well regarded, and there were others like him that, that went around his camp. Um, anyway, it's a fascinating story, but did I answer your question? I just kind of went on a, like an extra DVD cut. Huh? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you have a question? So, if he was a leader in the church at the time, and uh, was this before Luther got, uh, they started getting deep in the scripture, or did he even recognize that in the beginning uh, they talk about the, the, that God was three in one, even in the Old Testament? Right. Did he? Yeah, well, one thing I want to make clear is sometimes, again, we, 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 it's easy for us to think um, that you know, nobody looked at Scripture before Luther. And that's not true. People, Christians had the Bible. Okay? They, didn't, they didn't have the Bible mass-produced. You had to go to church to hear the Bible. Um, that's, you know, the Gutenberg Press isn't invented until like 1455 or something. Um, but you can, you can pick up uh, works of you know, Thomas Aquinas or medieval theologians or the ancients, and they had the Bible. Um, through the Middle Ages, you know, like from the fall of the Roman Empire up until the Renaissance, um, it, the Latin Vulgate is pretty much what's used universally. There still are you know, studies in Greek and Hebrew, but the Latin is what's used almost primarily. That was a big problem, because some of the words are translated improperly. But this is before that. And uh, this is Greek-speaking, also in the East. And uh, the Nicene is uh, published you know, in, in Greek and in Latin. And um, the thing is about, when it comes to the studies of Scripture, because you know, sometimes I think, we, we tend to think, well, I've had some people say to me before, you know, Pastor, I was reading Augustine, and, you know, when he's talking about salvation, he doesn't sound like Luther or what we would believe. 
And that's true. But that's because that's not the argument that he, that's not, that's not the debate going on in his day. That's not what the church is concerned about. They're, they're, they're arguing and discussing other things. So getting to your question, the, um, you know, did people, did they, did the, was the Trinity invented at Nicaea? You know, as Dan Brown said in uh, The Da Vinci Code. Um, it was amazing to me, that movie, The Da Vinci Code. It was fun to watch, but it was amazing to me. There's uh, Tom Hanks and um, Ian McCullen, you know, these big A-list actors, and they're talking about the Council of Nicaea. I was like, you're invading my space here. This is bizarre. And, uh, and of course, the idea is that, oh, you know, it was more not the Trinity they were saying. They were saying that uh, uh, the idea that Christ was divine was promoted at that point. Because that was, that's what was at stake at, at Nicaea, is Christ's divinity. Um, but there were, there were people uh, had, uh, before Nicaea, Tertullian and Irenaeus and, and others, you know, have writings that speak about the divinity of Christ, the eternality of Christ, God as triune. It's just, as I was saying to John, that our language gets tighter as time goes on. That's the debt we have to heresy. Bad teaching comes along. Church has to look at it. We reformulate sometimes our language. And so at the Reformation, when it came to the doctrine of justification, we got confessions and catechisms out of that, if that makes sense. Did I answer your question, or did I just hover around the runway? Well, the problem is with councils is that in 1095... 1095, right? 1095, I keep saying left and right. Too much political blah, blah, blah this week. Um, East and west split. Yeah, the west is left and the east is right. Let that simmer for a little while. Um, But the... uh, I'm speaking geographically, okay? I'm speaking geographically. The, um, The... They split in 1095 officially even though you, ha- you see theological trends that are very different going through the ages. Um, so to get an ecumenical council now would be impossible because the East does not recognize the primacy of the Pope. That's really the big issue. And the Pope's authority in Catholic doctrine has only grown and become more powerful over the centuries. Um, I, I asked this, the, the catechism or the uh, new members class this question. So if you're in my new members class on Thursday night, don't answer. Um, When did the doctrine of papal infallibility become an official doctrine for Rome? 1870 at Vatican I. Think about that. It was not at the time of the Reformation. It was not in the Middle Ages. It was not in the ancient church. The papacy grew. In fact... Nicaea, the fact that uh, uh, Constantine moves the capital of Rome to the east and names it Constantinople. That's what you do when you're powerful and a megalomaniac. You name everything after yourself. And uh, he names the city after himself, and that becomes the capital. Well, Rome, which had been the center, the, you know, the epicenter of the world for centuries, 
Now it's without the emperor. Who do you think many people turned to for leadership? The bishop of Rome. And you see the, the pope, who's just a bishop, just like you had bishops in all these other cities, you see his power and influence growing with Constantine. Before Constantine, it's, you know, it's very shady. But with Constantine, all of a sudden, the bishop of Rome he becomes more and more powerful. And then there's you know, a whole bunch of things that go on along with that. Uh, point being is that there's, a, there's development and there's arguments. And we have to look at kind of the chronological story of what's being debated at that time. Um, but before Nicaea, yeah, you have, you have Tertullian, for example. Uh, he uses the word trinitas in Greek. They're reading Greek texts. Um, yeah, it was, this is before the time of the Latin Vulgate, when Jerome translates the, the Bible into Latin, and then that becomes the official text. That really messes things up, because they, they translate, for example, the, the word for um, justification, dikaiosune, um, justificare in the Latin, which means to make righteous. Justificare does, but it can't mean to declare righteous. But the semantical range of the Greek word can mean that. You see how that happened. And if you're only using the Latin Vulgate, a Latin translation of the Greek New Testament, New Testament and the, the semantical range of a word like justification um, stops at to make righteous. Well, then a doctrine naturally develops if you're only using the Latin. Justification means that you, you have to grow in your righteousness. That's what, this, that's what it's all about. That's, and so the Renaissance comes along and people are returning to the original texts and you have people like Erasmus and others you know, that, are, that are making these really nice Greek texts. And, um, and that is, you couldn't have had the Reformation without the Renaissance. That's a good way of putting it. That's a good way. I'm going to steal that from you. That's a good way of... It's not your intellectual property. I'm taking it. So. If the, it's like saying, if in your toolbox, if all you have is a hammer, everything becomes a nail. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. So um, anyway, it's good for us to, uh, to think about these things, though. I know we're kind of going all over. Um, so let's get to the next question here. I can see what happened to Dr. Glomsrud a couple of weeks ago. I'm going I'm to try to avoid that. So, why, so in five minutes, why do you call him our Lord? Uh, because not with gold or silver. Oh gosh, but you know, there's so much more to say about this. If you look at the texts, just real quick. No, 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 I'm going to refrain. It, you see the proof text there. You can look them up during halftime at the Super Bowl today. Um, so what, why do you, let's go to 34. Why do you call him our Lord? Because not with gold or silver, but with his precious blood, he has set us free from sin and from the tyranny of the devil and has bought us body and soul to be his very own. And you can see the passages that he's quoting. First Peter 1, 18 and 19, that's almost a direct quote. We haven't been redeemed with things like gold and silver or the blood of animals, but with the blood of Christ. And then Colossians 1, 13 and 14, I love that passage. He has uh, delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom 
of light in his beloved son. And um, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 speaks about the, the son uh, redeeming us from the tyranny of the devil. And 1 Corinthians 6.20, of course, is, um, for you were bought with a price, and you are not your own. And um, these are the la- these, this is the language that we're getting. So when we say Christ is our Lord, this is important. He's not only our Savior. Uh, I think, you know, a lot of times we would just like Jesus to be our Savior. You know, give, give me my fire insurance. I'm not going to go to hell, but I don't want you to be my Lord. That's inconvenient. But the, the salvation that he purchased for us that removes God's wrath from us, it has also purchased us, body and soul, so that we are now the possession of Jesus Christ. And there's a Heidelberg Catechism question one, Right? What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, can do whatever the heck I want. Right? That I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what our sin nature resists. We resist that. We want to redefine God's law. We want to redefine uh, sin. We want to be our own Lord. And uh, that's the thing that we have to always remember, that we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We bow the knee. And one day the whole world will bow the knee and confess, as Paul says in Philippians 2, to the glory of the Father, that the Son, Jesus Christ, is Lord, Lord over all. Any questions on that? Okay, we'll stop there. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for these truths that have been codified by others in the past, truths that are ultimately revealed in your word. And we do thank you for those who went before us, defending the truth. We thank you for those who met in councils and for those who wrote and preached and stood up for what your word ultimately says so clearly. We thank you, Father, for things like the the Council of Nicaea, imperfect as it was, and for the Reformation, imperfect as it was. That, Lord, we are here today confessing what your word ultimately says. That the God we worship is triune, that Jesus of Nazareth is Lord over all, and that we are your adopted children through him, and that salvation is by your grace alone, by faith alone in Christ alone. Thank you that we have had these things explained to us, and help us, we pray, uh, to hold fast to these doctrines and these truths, and to pass them on to the next generation with joy. And we pray that our children and grandchildren uh, would pass them on, and that your gospel would continue throughout time and, and across the world, the disciples of Jesus Christ would continue to be made, and that many would bow the knee to him, confessing him to be Lord, and doing so with the joy of your redemption in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.